Now, my, my family and I, like I'm sure your family, we have a variety of Christmas ornaments. It's coming soon that we're going to be breaking out our Christmas trees and putting our ornaments on the trees and decorating for Christmas. And some of you, I think, I know one person that used to teach at the Christian school, lady that I have a lot of respect for. She used to like break her Christmas tree at like the first of October or something crazy or right after Thanksgiving. Or She loved Christmas. One of the Christmas ornaments that we have, and that uh, I tend to be the one that probably puts it on the tree most of the time because it's heavy, and got to find the right spot on the tree so it doesn't just bend down the, the branch, is a little ornament of Noah and the ark. And the reason why I bring that up is because that little ornament is, depicts an ark the way that probably the unsaved world perceives the ark. Like in the ornament, I know it's not to scale, but in the ornament, like Noah and his wife are practically as big as the ornament, you know, the ark of the ornament, you know. And we see pictures, you know, of, of what the ark, you know, would have looked like, but tend, they tend to be cartoon characters. They tend to be, you know, the depiction that you see in the nursery here at, well, maybe not at our church, maybe at our church. A kid's nursery, you know, in your house, and you're just like, come on, how is that realistic? There's no way, right? And if you really look at that and think about it that way, you would say that this is ridiculous. And the unsaved world looks at the passage that we're in, and here's the story of Noah, and, and generally it's, that's ridiculous. Like, come on, you don't really believe that, do you? And we oftentimes as Christians, if we're not careful, can, can let that impact us a little bit. Maybe it wears down our confidence in the Word of God a little bit because we, you know, people kind of criticize and they critique and they seem to have these arguments and so on and so forth. And I want us to see um, in this account of Genesis 6 about Noah and the ark and his interaction with God and his obedience to God as they enter into the ark. Last week we talked about the fact that the, the, the world was corrupt and, and immensely sinful. And God said, look, in 120 years, I'm going to destroy every living thing on this planet that walks on the face of the earth. And then at the end of it, we read one verse. And the verse says, Noah, however, found favor with God. That, that Noah experienced the grace of God at the end of our study last week. And I wanted to work from that this morning. Now that we have seen that Noah has experienced the grace of God and that God is going to protect and deliver Noah's family, and we see that right off the bat, there's three things that I just want us to pay attention to for a second, or for a few seconds this morning. First, I want us to see that Noah's ark is not just a children's story. Okay, it's just, it's just not. And all that seems to be wrapped up in that. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of information from those who have really studied this out to say, you know what, this is actually a true history that we can actually rely on. Second thing that I want us to see is that Noah is an example of faith in action. And then lastly, I want to ask this question, what happens when the door shuts? 
And so I entitled my message this morning, When God Closes a Door. You guys are already thinking what the end of that statement is, because we've all heard it. It's not what you're thinking this time. <laughs> Generally, you know, we throw the, when God closes a door, He opens a window. I don't, I don't know, I don't want to go through the window, <laughs> I'm sorry. That doesn't make any sense to me, but I think you'll see the purpose of the title as we work through. I want to read some verses. There are a lot of verses. We probably don't have time. I'll try to maybe just um, hit the high points of the verses, but I want us to see a few verses. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 9, and I'll read for a bit, and then maybe I'll summarize, and then I'll read some more, just because we're covering a lot of ground, but I want us to see some important things. It says in verse 9, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. I want you to listen very carefully to the way that Noah is described here. By God in his word, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Sounds an awful lot like another guy that we've already talked about. Actually, a relative of his. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. And God saw how corrupt the earth was. For every creature had corrupted itself on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every living creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them with, along with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you will make it. The ark will be 450 feet long. Your Bible may say cubits. The CSB has already kind of converted that for us into modern measurements. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof finishing the sides of the ark within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door on the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything, from the birds according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and will come to you so that you can keep them alive." Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that the Lord had commanded him. I'm going to pause there. When we get into chapter 7, the first few verses of chapter 7, we see that God gives a bit more specificity to this. Up to this point, he says, bring two of every kind of animal and bird, and things that crawl on the earth. And then in chapter 7, he expands that a little bit, and he says, for the clean animals, I need you to bring seven of their kind, and for the unclean, two of their kind. So God gives a bit more detail. In chapter 7, 
And I'm going to bring this up because I think that this is actually really important, and it goes along with some critics of the Old Testament who tried to fool around and, and, and poke holes through this passage, which didn't work then and it doesn't work now. You will see if you're paying attention to your wording in the English language that you have at the beginning of chapter 7, then the Lord, Lord all capitals, said to Noah, enter the ark. And then a little further on down, you'll see in verse 5, Noah did everything that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, commanded him. These are the English ways for us to understand that we are talking about God's name, Jehovah. But in other passages in this section, you see God, G-O-D, which is the Hebrew word Elohim. There are those that try to, try to, you know, pick apart this passage because, you know, the writer was, there are two different writers at two different times, and one's talking about Jehovah God, and one's talking about Elohim God. That, none of that. That's just foolishness. But what I do want us to see is that God, the Redeemer, is interacting with Noah about bringing him through the flood in the ark and delivering him or saving him. Significant that even God's name in this passage relates to his character and what is going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit further on. But I want us to just take a step back for a second and look at this passage that we've read already. Something that we need to see here is that Noah's Ark is not just a children's story. This account is history. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's not fable. There are those that try to pick apart this and say, well, you know what? If you actually did your, your homework, you would discover that the Epic of Gilgamesh was written, you know, much earlier than this passage in Genesis, and that's a, that's a flood account, you know, and, and the writer of Genesis just kind of took that and developed it and blah, 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 blah. Okay. There's a lot of reasons for why the idea that the writer of Genesis took that account and copied it and adjusted it are ridiculous. Okay. I'm not going to get into all of that. Was the Epic of Gilgamesh written before the writing of Genesis? Yes. There's, I think, that, that shows or proves something. Not that the Genesis account is not the unreliable, or is, is an unreliable one, or not the accurate one. But this prompts us to sometimes, when we hear things like that, if we've ever heard that before, we're like, well, is this account really legitimate? You know, is this kind of fantastic here? Is this a little over the top? So I just want to share a little bit of detail with you. I, I don't want to. I don't want to bore you, and I don't, want to, I, I, I don't want to get off track a little bit, but I think we need to understand that there are those who, like us, say this is the Word of God, and if this is the Word of God, this is accurate and reliable and true. And so there are believers, scientists that have done some figuring, some calculating, some investigating, some scientific stuff to help us understand could, in fact, Noah have built an ark of these dimensions that would have actually floated on the water and been able to handle all these animals and himself and his family? And the answer is yes. 
just want you to see some dimensions here a little bit. The ark size, if we take it kind of um, based on an average of what a cubit is, about 18 inches, we, that's where we get these measurements here, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. At those dimensions, the ark size is around 1.52 million cubic feet. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It actually is a lot. I have a couple of pictures that they can have up so that we can kind of see maybe what the dimensions are like or what maybe sometimes we see things that uh, are caricatures of it and that's what kind of distracts us. I think I have a picture of the ark with like a, all the animals jam-packed in. I don't know if they can throw that up there or not. So that's what we kind of, kind of sometimes are convinced of what it should have been like. The skeptics would say, oh, that's the ark. Look at that. That's ridiculous. Okay. But this is actually what the ark was like in its dimensions, and we know that it had three levels. Ark would have been wider than six lanes of the U.S. interstate highway system, wider than six lanes of traffic. If you've ever been in six lanes, that's pretty wide. The capacity is equivalent to about 522 standard American railroad stock cars or 370 semi-truck trailers. For you basketball fans, the deck area of the ark could fit 22 International Basketball Federation regulation basketball courts. Not that there were basketball courts on the ark, but. In Noah's Ark, a feasibility study by John Woodmorap, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, seeking to be generous to the critics of the Genesis account. He treats the kinds mentioned in Genesis as equivalent to the man-made category of genus. For you science people, you know what I'm talking about. For you that are not science people and you have not been in high school for a long time, there are different categories as they um, categorize animals, right? There's species and genus and family and kingdom and, you know, kingdom being the broadest, animal kingdom, and then filters down. One of the big arguments is, come on now, how could the ark fit some, some whatever, 1.7 million species? That's ridiculous. Can't happen. But, we didn't ha but Noah didn't have to fit every species of animal in the ark. And the Bible actually is very clear that he was supposed to take two of every kind of animal. That didn't include the, uh, the uh, water creatures because they were already in the water. So he didn't need to take them on. Okay? Scripture is quite specific. He says... Two of everything from the birds according to their kind, from the livestock according to their kind, and from the animals that crawl on the earth according to their kinds. There's the categories that God told Noah to take on the ark. Woodmerak, seeking to be generous to the critics, says that the Genesis kind is probably the man-made category of genus. He totals that there are about 8,000 genera. That includes those that have gone extinct, making the total around 16,000 individual animals aboard, which is actually totally achievable. Not only that, but Woodmerap calculated that it was more than feasible for sheep-sized animals, and he did those calculations based on the size of semi-trucks and how much you can fit sheep in a semi-truck anyway, trailer, I'm not going to get into all that, but 
Woodmore app calculated that it was more than feasible for sheep-sized animals to fit on the ark. But the reality is, is that most vertebrates are smaller than a sheep. The average size of an animal on the ark would actually be about the, ra- uh, the size of a small rat. Start thinking about, is this possible? Is this feasible? Absolutely it is. Because the God of the universe said, Noah, this is how you're going to do it, and this is how it's going to work. And I know because I made everything. Not only that, but the dimensions of the ark as a long rectangle were actually extremely stable in the water. Some people say, well, what, yeah, now what about elephants? What about giraffes? What about, what about, what about dinosaurs? You creationists say that dinosaurs were on the ark. Those things are huge. What we do know is that dinosaurs are hatched from eggs. And nobody says that Noah had to take full-grown animals on the ark, right? Like, all we have to do is use a little bit of common sense, and we realize this is a historical fact. We have it written here. God's recorded it for us. He's telling us this is how it worked. And subsequently, scientist after scientist has put it to the test and said, yeah, this is, in fact, very feasible. Not only that, but global flood legends are common among peoples around the world. In other words, when Noah and his family came off the ark and they had children and they had children and they had children, they would have recounted how God saved them from the flood. And those stories went on and on and on. Of course, over time, they got embellished. Over time, they got adjusted or whatever. But the fact that people groups around the world have a common flood story relates back to this. The Epic of Gilgamesh would have been one of those flood stories. I just want you to hear this. This is from the Genesis account by Jonathan Serafati. I I love how they record this. It says, in in addition, the meow, meow, I'm not sure if that's even how you pronounce it. It sounds like a cat, but anyway. The, The meow tribe who resides in southwest China had a tradition which is like the Genesis account, even before they met any Christian missionaries. According to their tradition, when God destroyed the whole earth by the flood because of the wickedness of man, Nua, a righteous man and his wife, Matriarch, interesting that they use that as a name, their three sons, Lohan, Loshan, and and Jahu, survived by building a broad, very broad ship and embarked on it with pairs of animals. Furthermore, their genealogy records as follows. The patriarch Jafu got the center of the nations, and the son he begot was the patriarch Gomen. It's just interesting how they would have had a flood tradition that sounds an awful lot like the biblical account. And I would say that that was passed on from person to person from Noah and those that came from Noah. And yes, it got adjusted and and altered over time, but we get to read the account that God actually lays out for us. This is the true account. This is the accurate one. See, Noah's story of the ark is not 
just a children's tale. Lastly, I believe that we can take this account and say, yes, this is true and dependable and reliable and right because Jesus said it was. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 and 39, and Luke records it also in Luke 17, 26 and 27. This is what Jesus says. Does he explain the whole Genesis or the whole Noah account? No. But this is what Jesus says. He takes it as history, and that he, as he's talking to his disciples, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He says, For in the days, excuse me, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. And they didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way that the coming of the Son of Man will be. Jesus says, you know what, fellas, when I come back again, it's going to be like the days of Noah. You know exactly what that's all about. I could go on. Things like God told him to cover it in pitch. There are those that have tried to criticize that and say, well, you need petroleum products, but actually... You can make pitch from pine resin mixed with charcoal. It wasn't just to seal the outside and inside of the ark, but actually studies have shown that cover, wood covered in pitch is actually completely impact resistant, which would have lent to the security of that boat while it was on the water. Second thing I want us to see, though, is that Noah is an example of faith in action. As we read this account, not only do we have information about how God was going to protect and save uh, Noah and his family and the animals, and we can go deep into all sorts of different aspects of this, but one I want us to see is this. It, we are told very clearly that Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man, a man who walked with God. We know that he had, he had received the grace of God. Hebrews tells us that by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, he'd never seen a flood before, didn't know what that was, never seen a boat before, didn't know what that was. And motivated by godly fear, built the ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from by faith. Noah believed God and did what God said. Hey, Noah, I need you to build a boat, and it looks like this. And Noah says, okay. I'm going to bring a flood. Okay. I'm going to bring you some animals. Okay. The Bible tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. Undoubtedly, Noah, while he was building this ark for the 70 to 120 years that it took him to do it, likely was telling people, anybody that he saw, hey, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Why? Because God's going to destroy the earth with a flood. Because the world's wicked. You guys are wicked. You're sinful. You've strayed from God. Why don't you actually put your faith in God and come on this ark with us? God's provided a way of deliverance. Why don't you listen to what he's saying to you? Nah, Noah, you're ridiculous, man. And yet Noah built the ark. Noah did everything that God told him to do. Scriptures actually tells us this. It says, and Noah did this. 
He did everything that God had commanded him to do. See, Noah was a man whose faith was in action. He didn't just believe what God said. Hey, Noah, I'm going I'm to deliver you from the flood. I'm going to deliver you in an ark. Okay, God. I'll just sit here until you do whatever it is that you're going to do. No, God says, I need you to do this. Okay, I'm going to do this. I don't understand it all, but if you're telling me to do it, I'm going to obey. If these are your commands, I'm going to do them. If these are your instructions, this is what I'm going to do. You're telling me not to do this? Okay, God, I won't do that. Why? Because you know what, God? I'm walking with you. I'm following you. I've given my life for you, to you. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. James chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that faith, well, let me read it. Some people struggle with James sometimes because it almost sounds like James is talking about a works-based salvation. He is absolutely not. But what James is emphasizing here is that, you know what, my works demonstrate my faith. They show my faith. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you faith by my works. See, genuine saving faith is a, is a faith that transforms our lives. I've given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have the Holy Spirit of God living within me, and He is renewing me. He is remaking me. He is making me into the image of God's Son. And as I look more and more like Christ, I'm going to be more and more obedient to the Father. And I'm going to live that out, and my actions are going to demonstrate my faith. I think of the parable of the talents. I think of those servants that received the talents from the master. And the master said, these are my talents. I've given them to you. You use them. And two of those servants, faithful servants, went out, and they, they, they did what their master told them to do. They trusted the master, they put it into practice in their lives, and they demonstrated fruit through that. Fruit was displayed in their life. The other one dug a hole and buried it because he didn't have the right understanding of who the master was and what the master was like and had nothing to show for it. It's like the parable of the, the virgins, the ten virgins, five you know, had the oil, had the excess oil, were ready when the bridegroom came, and the other five were not. And they had to go searching for the, the oil for their lamps. And when the bridegroom came, he took the brides that were ready, and the other brides were not. And when they went and knocked on the door and said, hey, finally we have our oil, you know, let us in, the bridegroom says, no, I didn't know you. See, genuine saving faith is shown in our life in our actions. Noah believed God. Noah trusted God, and it was shown in his obedience to God. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, if God is our Savior and Master, it is going to be shown in our obedience to Him. Pastor Andy talked about that, the conduct that was becoming of a born-again believer. It impacts our speech. It impacts our thoughts. It impacts the way that we respond to people and interact with people. It responds 
or it, it's demonstrated in our interaction with God and our obedience to God in so many areas of our life. And Noah is an example of faith in action. He entered the ark when God told him to enter the ark. He built it the way that God told him to build it, and God established his covenant with him. Lastly, and again, we could spend a lot more time on this, but on this section, but I just want us to see some important parts to this, some important aspects of it. In chapter 7, we have the Lord Jehovah, God the Redeemer, say, Noah, it's time for you to enter, your ark, enter, enter the ark with your family. It's time for me to deliver you from the coming judgment. When God interacts with Noah and talks about his creation and the fact that he's going to destroy his creation, the writer of Genesis actually uses God's general name, Elohim, which is always connected between God and his creation as the creator, as the master over his creation. God says, it's time for me to destroy my creation. And I'm going to do that as Elohim, God the creator. But no, I'm going to deliver you and your family and the animals that go onto the ark because why? I'm God the Redeemer, Jehovah God. And Jehovah God tells Noah to enter the ark with his family and all the animals that God brought to him. Seven of the clean ones. I believe through my study that that's probably three pairs for posterity and one for sacrifice. And then two of the rest. I'm not going to belabor the point, but it's obvious to us and it flies in the face of our culture. But the animals that came on the ark, they were what? All males? All females? No. Male and female, because these animals cannot procreate without a male and a female. We understand that it's true, it's right. It's God-sanctioned and God-ordained. And our culture constantly pushes against that and says, no, that's lies. And it's not lies. Last thing that I want to say is this. What happens when the door shuts? See, God tells Noah and his family to enter the ark. He brings the animals to Noah and those animals enter the ark. And then God shuts the door. I just want to read verses 14 to 16 of chapter 7. It says this, They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds. Just another demonstration of faith in action. They did exactly what God called them to do. It was only Noah and his family. His three sons and their wives, Noah and his wife and the livestock, nobody else. Nobody else responded to the message. Nobody else humbled themselves and repented of their sin and trusted God in his deliverance, only Noah and his family. And Noah and his family entered the ark with all the animals, all the wildlife according to their kinds, all the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every bird excuse me, every flying creature and all the birds and every winged creature according to their kind. Two of every creature that has breath in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered male and female of every creature entered just as God 
Elohim had commanded him, and then the Lord Jehovah shut the door. What happens when the door shuts? Well, first of all, we see, and this has been said by many a pastor, so I'm not saying anything new to me. I'm just repeating great stuff that other guys have preached. When God shuts the door, there's security. See, Noah didn't shut that door. God shut that door. God shut them in, and when they were in that ark, they were going to be secure in the midst of that storm. When the storm comes to destroy all living things, in an act of God's judgment on sinful humanity, sinful creation, Noah and his family are safe and secure in God's promised deliverance. I think about John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, My sheep hear my voice. My sheep, believers in Jesus Christ, those like Noah and his family, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Excuse me, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Noah and his family didn't perish in that flood. Why? Because Noah believed in God, and he did exactly what God called him to do. And God protected and delivered their family. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We have eternal security as believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus says that. God shutting Noah and his family in the ark is a picture of that. I think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says this, In Him, Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says very much the same thing. He says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. You know what? If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are living obedient lives as God called us to, you know, we're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we as followers of Jesus Christ disobey God and do things our way instead of doing things God's way. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he reminds them you're sealed with him until the day of redemption. You have eternal security because you've given your life to Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Let me make no bones about it. It's super important for us to understand that a genuine believer in Jesus Christ who has that eternal security is somebody who's going to live for Christ, who's going to be obedient to Christ. And if they stray away, God's going to dis discipline them. He's going to correct them. 
His desire is to bring them back. He's going to use people, other Christians in their lives to say, come on back. You're straying. Stop straying. I love you. I got to point this out to you because this is not what God wants you to do. This is displeasing to God. Please, I love you so much. I want to help you with this. You're reading God's Word, and God's bringing deep conviction in your heart. Why? Because you know there's sin in your life, and God's pointing it out to you. Why is He doing that? Because you've strayed, and He wants to bring you back into a right fellowship with Him. God used Paul to confront the Corinthian church they were not obeying God, and they were bringing disgrace to Him. And He says, you need to smarten up, because I love you. I want to help you that way. What happens when the door shuts? We have security. Noah had security. Grace was extended. You know, up until God shut that door, there was an opportunity for people to repent of their sin and come on board. And Noah, as a faithful preacher of righteousness, would have been able to, or would have just kept on, would have kept on, hey, come on, you guys are to repent. Just like Jonah with the Ninevites, even though Jonah didn't really even want to. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And what did the people do? They repented, and God spared them. They had that opportunity. Grace was extended up until God shut that door. But when God shut that door, what happened? The opportunity was gone. The Bible tells us that as soon as God shut that door, the flood continued for 40 days and 40 nights. The flood came. And all of those people that were outside of that ark perished. God is not obligated to continually offer the gift of salvation, the gospel to you over and over again if you're going to reject it. He's not obligated to bring somebody along to share the gospel with you again. He's not obligated to do that, but you know what? Peter says in 2 Peter, God is not slack as some consider slackness, but He's willing that, well, His desire is that all come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. That's God's desire. God wants all to be saved. He extends that invitation over and over again, but there's going to come a day when that opportunity, that invitation is done. If there's someone here this morning, and you've been here before, maybe you've been here regularly for a bit, and you know deep down you've never really trusted Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. You, you're religious. You come here on a regular basis. You kind of know some things about the Bible. You know the right words to say, but in your heart you're still living for you. You're still saying, you know what? I don't need that. My greatest fear is that today is the last opportunity that you'd ever have to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond. And I implore you, don't say no to the gift that God's pre presenting to you, salvation through Jesus Christ. Today, put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you from your sin and to live for Him. Do it today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. What happens if God shuts the door for you? Scripture tells us that at the day of judgment, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. 
in torment and suffering and in judgment for all eternity because you wanted to do it your way instead of God's way. You rejected the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ, and I would say, please don't. Don't reject it any longer. Trust Christ. Don't let the door shut on you. Christian, we don't know when the opportunity is going to come to an end to share the gospel with somebody around us. We have colleagues, we have family members that maybe we haven't taken the opportunity to share the gospel with, and we may never see them ever again because maybe we change jobs and we never see them. Maybe they pass away and we don't have that opportunity to share the gospel with them again. Take every opportunity that we can to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody who can hear it. It's what happens when the door shuts. They may never hear the gospel again and could go to a crisis eternity.